Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Thank you for your support, and enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. It's a pleasure to be here today. I feel like I'm missing something today, and I am. What I'm missing is a tooth. About three hours ago, I had a huge tooth in my mouth, extracted, as they say. I visualize myself going into the oral surgeon as I sit across from my guest, who I'm amazingly excited about, Simon Painter. I think to myself when I've had my dealings with Simon Painter, I thought a lot about the dentist because dealing with Simon Painter sometimes could be termed as like pulling teeth. But we'll talk about that a little bit later because he's a tremendous, tremendous visionary and executive and a guy who produces and he just, he has this way about him where he can get anything that he wants at any time. And it's just a fascinating thing. We'll get into that in a second. So I'm at the dentist and I go there and, you know, you have a choice what you can do when you go to the dentist. You have a choice whether you can be put to sleep. That's the highest level of comfort. Then you could, the second choice is laughing gas. And the third choice is, fuck it. We're going to take this thing out with Novocaine. So I ask him, well, you know, how much is going to, cost to get the tooth taken out he says four hundred dollars i thought to myself that's that seems pretty reasonable to get your tooth taken out 400 bucks you know what i mean the guy works i said how long is it going to take he says about 40 minutes i said oh jesus that's a tremendous ten dollars a minute you're in and 
And then I ask him, how much is the, you know, getting put to sleep? He said, that's $400. I said, that's just as much as the tooth being said. Yeah, $400. That's, uh, that's what it's going to cost you. And I thought about this comedian that I grew up with in my hometown, Longmeadow, this guy, Mark Cohen, a very funny comedian. And I, I'm not going to remember the joke entirely, but it was something about he went to go get his cat spayed or neutered or whatever you call it. And the price of getting the cat spayed and neutered was like $150. And they saw a sign on the counter, special, we can put your cat or dog to sleep for $50. <laughs> and so he thought to himself, Jesus Christ, well, I just put my dog to sleep. I save 100 bucks, and <laughs> I'm all set here. I didn't elect to go to sleep. I took the laughing gas, and as I'm on this laughing gas, I realize why they're calling it laughing gas, because I'm visualizing that this man is literally going to walk in, and he's going to plant his foot on my chest and have pliers in his hand and just take this thing out. But that didn't happen. It was very nice, wonderful, and uh, I am missing something, but it's just a tooth. But it was the most pleasant experience I probably could ever have at the dentist. But that's not why I'm here, and I'm sorry I'm talking about that. But I said to myself I was going to honor my commitment with Simon Painter because he's a very busy man. And I, I thought to myself, before I came and sat down here, how many times there have been people that I've known in my life that were feeling a little under the weather or they weren't feeling that well and there was some event or something that could benefit them in their career and they'll email or text back or call you know I've got a sore throat and I'm not feeling that well I'm I don't think I should go tonight to that event or something of that nature where they just there's a health issue and they decide you know what I'm just going to stay in bed and I think and again I never know where I'm going to go on these things Simon when I talk about this but as I look at you I think to myself without even knowing you as well as I know you you'd have to be dying not to go someplace that was going to help you and your career and for me, I've always found for myself that I've never missed anything because of being sick or feeling under the weather or you'd have to put me in the hospital to get me not to go to something. But the fact is, if you're a young person and you want to be in this business, Uber, taxi, friend, mom, dad, anybody, hitchhike, Oh, I don't know, I'm going to, you know, medication, I'm going to stay in bed, I'm going to hang around here. And that's what a lot of people don't understand in this business, is that you have to do everything you can to the get, get to the next level if you want to get to the next level, within reason. And you have to be in a situation to push yourself. And to get to the next level, you have to push yourself and you have to push through the things that technically your mom or your dad would say, no, stay in, don't go out tonight, whatever. You have to go and do everything you can to meet the people you need to meet because you never know when you're going to meet Jerry Weintraub again. You never know when you're going to be in the same room with Simon Painter and and these are important things for you in any business you're in. So I think 
the short lesson that I have to tell you guys today, if there is one, is the fact that don't stand between yourself and getting to the next level because on any given day you're feeling under the weather. Push yourself. You can always get the rest afterwards. You can always take the day off the next day if you have to. You can always figure out a way to work around it. But do everything you can to make sure you have the mental toughness to meet as many people in the business, in your business, that will help you get to the next level as possible. And so just remember, if you're feeling sick and your body and mind tell you not to go, go. It could change your life forever. Here we go in three, two. We ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. Infections caused by jacuzzi water. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. Okay, here we go. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Now I'm on the air! People on Twitter have been asking for Barry Katz to come back a lot. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Here we go. You fucking firing me up, Katz. Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Undeniable. Creating holy shit moments. I love this man. Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Welcome back to another episode of Toothless industry standard with barry katz very excited my guest today simon painter i'm going to introduce him but before i do i just want to remind you guys of something if you get the chance and you think you want to buy something anytime in the world i have a favor to ask you if you want to support this show it costs you nothing okay all i want you to do is go to barrycats.com slash podcast at the top right, you'll see this little rectangular banner. It says Amazon. You click on it. You browse. You look around. Maybe you want to get just some ping pong balls. Maybe you want to get those shoes with the red on the bottom for your girl that are $2,750. Who knows? And when you do that, it helps the show because Amazon has been supportive of us, and they give us a commission on everything that's bought, but they don't take any money away from you. It doesn't cost any more. It's just the way it is. So if you get a chance and you like the show and you feel comfortable doing that for us, we would be honored. But more importantly, let's talk about my guest today, Simon Painter, who I am going to give the proper introduction to. This is going to be one of my shortest introductions ever because I want to get to it. Because this guy has a very unique story. And I have never, ever interviewed anybody who does what he does and who's like him. Simon Painter is a visionary, creative producer and entrepreneur based in California. Originally from London, Simon started his career as a classical violinist, but soon transitioned into producing and creating commercial theater. During the past decade, Simon has been at the forefront of the live entertainment industry, having launched and managed major performance venues and conceived, created, and produced acclaimed productions such as Adrenaline and Lenoir. The first show he produced, Le Grand Cirque, smashed box office records at the Sydney Opera House, selling over, get this everybody, 40,000 tickets. 
in 10 days. In 2012, in collaboration with Tim Lawson, Simon created the Illusionists franchise, which became the biggest selling magic show in the history of Broadway and has played in over 50 cities and 15 countries. The brand expanded to include the stunning sequels, The Illusionist 2.0, The Next Generation of Magic, and The Illusionist 1903, The Golden Age of Magic, which debuted in Australia in January of this year. We have a lot to talk about with this man because his story is inspirational. Please welcome my guest today, Simon Painter. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to have you. I, I'm so grateful. When I first met you, you just were so uniquely different from anybody that I'd ever met before. I just thought to myself, I have to get to know this guy as best as I can. Well, that is, I mean, what an intro. It's amazing to, uh, it, it's funny when you actually hear it said like, uh, <laughs> said like that. I think, God, when you actually sit down and think about it, yeah, there's been a, you know, it's been a long few years. Well, I mean, you're doing it. You're you're really doing it. And you're like, for you guys to visualize Simon, he's like, it, it's not like he's a little guy. He's not little, but he's not a, you know, he's not a large man, but he's like larger than life. And he walks in, he like walks in the office. You feel like Bono is walking in here. He's got his brown, like designer kind of bootsy shoes. He's got these tight pants. You can actually see what religion he is. He's got the snakeskin belt, the nice hip kind of polka dot blue shirt. He's got his hair in a ponytail like I did in 1979. He's got this like George Michael stubble, except he's heterosexual. And he's got these great glasses that are like the, you know, the aviation kind of style glasses. And, uh, you know, it's just a cool guy. I don't know what it is. It's just uh, you move me. Well, thank you so much. It's, you know, it was actually when you were talking before about the... Uh you know, being lazy to do an opportunity or to meet somebody. I mean, that for me is the key resonator with everything that we do in our lives that I see at the moment is that you just never, ever, ever miss an opportunity. And it never ceases to amaze me that people do every day. Like if there's a chance to meet somebody or go somewhere or just do anything, you always just have to say yes. Like you never, ever say no, ever, right? I mean, you never say, oh, I'm not quite sure. You just do it. But people always say no. I don't get it. Tell us all just off the top of your head one example of something where you were like, like an ordinary person would never have pushed themselves, but you did something, some crazy story of yours were, and it really... You'd, no one would know what would happen when you did go forward, but then what happened really came forward and made something really special in your life. Okay, well, I was a I was a, a reasonably unemployed classical violinist in London. <laughs> what is unreasonably unemployed? Well, I mean, I was, you know, I was sort of... Uh, had gigs i played drums and violin i was i i'd lived in italy i was you know doing the kind of band thing i was in a band i was always an entrepreneur and always had a million other things going but my main thing is i wanted to play music and i was a classical violinist and i was struggling and it was you know i was kind of I ended up selling computers and doing a you know selling leather handbags it was you know just the worst kind of jobs you can imagine always trying to sort of support doing you know this this kind of crazy art form and um my brother phoned me and said, "Oh, there's a um, there's a job. Uh, it's it's a, it's a crazy job. 
you've got to kind of go for this thing. It's at the other end of England. Um, you know, you, they want a crazy fiddler. And they want somebody who can basically dance on stage with a violin on fire. And I was like, okay. So I turned up to this thing and I realized it was all or nothing. And I dove onto the table, took my hair out and played the fiddle. And um, basically that got me my job. I mean, I couldn't, have, I couldn't have wanted to go any less. I really did not want to do it at all. Uh, and that got me my gig with Spirit of the Dance, which was this big Irish dance show. And I ended up being the star of that show. And it was from doing something that, uh, I mean, it was such a hassle to go to this thing. It was for so little money at the other end of England, completely out my wheelhouse. I didn't dance. I'd never been in a show. I was into playing proper music. And um, and that really, it changed my life completely. Wow. Nice. That's fantastic. Let's see, you talked about those early years. If you don't mind, I'd like to go, as I do, way back. So we're going to go way, way back, and you're going to tell us where you grew up, what kind of family life it was, were you poor as a family, were you middle, middle class, uh, um, and, and what was the first thing that happened to sort of inspire you to get into the entertainment business, albeit like through violin, but still... Uh, well, I was—I always wanted to do it. So, and I say when I say do it, I—I I just wanted to be in show business. So I would—I would be. So from the moment you remember. Yeah, and I thought it was going to be—I thought I was going to be like a rock and roll star, or um, I was going to promote bands and parties and hold on concerts. So I did all of it. So I had—I was in bands, I was in orchestras, I—I uh, I promoted parties when I was like fourteen. These kind of a—you know—I used to find someone's house print the flyers, have the tickets, make the money on the door. Um, I was in about probably like 15 or 20 different bands at any one time, uh, all trying to make it just with the goal of making it. And um, and this was where? This was in South London. South London. So you grew up in South London. Yeah. And uh, I always just wanted to do it. That's the only thing I ever wanted to do. I didn't know what that thing was, but I just knew it was entertaining. So it's something to do with entertainment and making lots of money. Take us through for the people from this country, because we don't really understand what happens in England and what kind of musical influences you have there. Are Do you listen more to the, the bands and the music from the people from the UK, or do you listen more to the people from the United States? Oh, it's, it's when, when I was growing up, it was all uh, raves in... Um, you know, underground railway stations. So when I was sort of 13, 14, 15, I mean, I think everybody in England grows up a bit quicker than people here because you don't, you can walk everywhere. So when you're, when you're from 10 or 11 years old, you're out and about, you're, you leave the house and you go. So the parents don't worry about whether their children are going to be abducted or not. It doesn't seem to, well, not, not at all. I mean, not in the way here. Like everyone, you know, the parents here seem to drive their kids everywhere to, you know, go and have this play date with these things. Whereas growing up in London, and I'm sure there's cities in America that are like this, but, you know, you get home from school and you go out, you know, you're you're out in the park or on your bike and you're meeting kids. So I think, you know, and you start drinking young. Like I definitely remember 13, 14, everybody had a beer by that point, you know, a beer and a smoke or... You know, so I think everybody grew up very young in South London. I mean, in London, England generally, you grow up sort of young. And it's not a bad thing or a good thing. It's just a fact of life. Whereas here I see, like, my friend's kids who are sort of 15, 16, and they're, you know, they get driven to these, like, little 
lovely little play dates at the weekend and baseball practice and stuff like that. So I think everybody grows up a bit younger and it, uh, it makes the whole sort of growing up in London thing, you get to experience life definitely, you know, a lot quicker. So I was able to, you know, able to play in a lot of bands and be around people that are a lot older than me and sort of going to these crazy raves in railway arches. Now, this is another thing I wanted to ask you, and I, I don't mean to seem naive, but what's the difference between a rave in the United States and a rave in England? Nothing. So, in other words, there's still people still taking Molly, ecstasy all the time? and Yeah, I actually I randomly never did drugs. I just, everyone else did, but I just didn't like it. But um, Why? I just like being in control. I mean, so I, you know, maybe used to smoke a bit of pot every now and again, but certainly, certainly never, uh, never, never anything else. And, uh, you know, I, I think raves are the same. It was so I, I've always been very good at uh, adapting to a situation. So I, so I had friends that played classical music and I was leading this big orchestra as a kid in London, this big sort of borough orchestra which was quite a big deal. I was Teenagers, like, though, in the orchestra. Yeah, it was like a youth orchestra, but it was quite a, quite a big deal to be the kind of leader of the orchestra, well, I suppose, you know, in that kind of place. So, so the conductor isn't the leader, you're the leader. I was like the lead violin, so I was right okay. at the front. So, uh, so I was a classical violinist, so I had this whole classical world of people that I was with and were into classical music, but then I had all these other friends that were into, like, this crazy electronic music. So lots of different worlds... And then I played for the sort of like lots of other different bands. I was in a thrash metal band called. Um, they used to rehearse in my house. It was called Internal Bleeding. So <laughs> I was playing Vorjak in the mornings and thrash metal in the evenings and electronic railway arches at three o'clock in the morning. <laughs> so I definitely had a really broad experience of music from from really all different angles of it with completely different groups of people. So the thrash metal people were into this sort of goth and crazy emo kind of thing, and then the classical people were obviously into playing Vorjak and Tchaikovsky, and then the electronic dance music people was in sort of progressive electronic music. So when you were a kid, obviously there was something channeling through you from, you know, I always think to myself when you meet somebody who just is into something right away, something's happening from a higher force or, or, or a bigger power. So... Why do you think you chose violin as a young kid to start with as opposed to any other instrument? Well, it was it was really my mum. I mean, she, I started when I was three. So so your mother started you on violin when you were three. Was she a violinist? No, she was a pianist. But she was very, very... I, I've got a twin brother, and we were both... She wanted us both to play music. We both started on violin. He ended up doing trumpet. and um, So we would... And I was just good. I was a good... I started very young and I was I loved it and I was good at it and I really enjoyed it and it was my life. I mean I played in all sorts of amazing groups. I was in the National Children's Orchestra and I was in every possible thing you can imagine in music. Choirs, orchestras, bands um and I I loved it. It was definitely my life. I mean, but you know, it it to be at that high a level that you're talking about which basically you were like an all-star somebody selected for an all-star team you were in music i mean it takes an enormous amount of practice and based on the schedule that you're telling me about with all the different kinds of music you did the orchestras you were in that's a that's another that's a different muscle of the violin than the other 
did or or did it not matter if you practice a rock if you practice with a rock and roll band it still counted as practice towards being great in the orchestra right well i mean i soon discovered that i didn't want to be a classical violinist so i got to about 14 15 and i realized that because i always also loved business i loved selling things and creating stories and I really did enjoy the entrepreneurial side of this business, like coming up with an idea and seeing it happen. Like, I'm going to make a rock and roll band. We're going to form this band. We're going to have a name. We're going to get a gig. We're going to make some money. We're going to print some records. We're going to be world famous. Like, for me, I always saw the end story with anything I did. So, And I didn't know if any one of those was particularly going to work. I just knew that you had to do lots of them. So the chances of success of any of them were slim. And I realized, like, my I think my mum obviously wanted me to go to college and be a classical violinist and i remember being about 14 or 15 and meeting this like prodigy like this was someone i'd known about for a decade one of the greatest violinists you know i'd ever heard of as a kid and i was like you know was their name oliver lewis and i I met this guy and you know it's like amazing and then i realized that they had no money and he'd he if i'd have played violin for the next thousand years 20 hours a day i wouldn't have been as good as him and and I realized that although I loved it a lot, I was never going to be happy because it wasn't going to give me like there's a, there was a level, there was a roof to it. There was like it wasn't going to give me what I needed. And, and it's not about the money. It was about the broadening of horizons and success and traveling the world and all the things I really wanted to do. Like playing violin was just never going to get me there. So uh, so when I realized that uh, I stopped playing. So I started playing drums and playing in rock and roll bands and that was my focus and running parties and doing all sorts of other things and um so when i say i stopped playing i stopped being like i'm going to be a violinist i was like well i'm going to be a businessman that's what i want to be so so it was a it was a real realization that god you know like number one i might not ever get there and even if i do get there i probably won't want to do it so just all of a sudden made made sense when you go to the parties that you organized or the things that you worked on because you were an entrepreneur, so you started doing parties. I imagine you started taking the door, trying to charge a cover charge yeah. at certain things and getting money in, and that was your first probably entry into, okay, how am I going to make some money here producing your own events? But when somebody goes, and I, I'm sorry to seem so naive, in your opinion... When a man or, or a young man goes to a rave and a young woman goes to a rave or a party that you organize with music that's that kind of like, because I know you, an outlandish kind of party and thing, what's on their mind when they're going there? What are they? What's their goal as a guy and what's their goal as a young girl, a young man, young woman? What's their goal when they go there? When they, you know, is their goal to just have a good time and hear music? Is their goal to meet new friends? Is their goal to get laid? I think it's all of those things. Yeah. I I never really enjoyed them, honestly. So it was just, I really enjoyed the music of it. So like being with the people that were making that kind of music, they were incredibly fascinating people that were for me, you know, having spent 15 years playing violin, you know, at the very highest levels that I could, electronic music was just an insane and amazing world. I think people went to raves just to, to lose their mind. I mean, you know, whether it was the drugs or the music or the combination and the fact that these things were, 
you know, there was, it was at the start of when that music was happening. So it was all completely fresh. Um, it's funny now because I hear, you know, electronic music now. It's, it's, for me, it sounds the same as it did 20 years later. I couldn't tell you if it was 20 years old or a week old. It sounds the same to me. So, Got it. So you're... you're 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 a teenager you're about to probably leave the house or try to leave your home uh and have a more independent life take me through that transition of leaving home and what were you doing and and were you struggling like what was happening uh, yeah i mean i play i had like i was in bands so i but to support that i had to have these jobs so i did this i did um i found i was really good at telephone sales so I used to have this have to have three personalities. I realized in telephone sales, so I was selling computers, and over the phone, like lots of them, like thousands and thousands of computers. And I worked for my my dad's mate who had this sort of computer business. I was probably like sixteen or seventeen, and um, and I realized that to get in the door, I had to completely change who I was on the phone because no one, you know, you get this call. So I used to say, "Hello, Sir Charles Panton Kent here." And I used to put on this incredible voice that was, you know, almost sounded like the royalty. And I'd get through based on the fact that it would be, you know, Charles Panton Kent on the phone. And he obviously is an old chum from school. Um, and that would work. And I sold a shit ton of computers. And so that game, you know, and it was, just, you could not wish for a more boring or un, un, you know, uninspiring job. But, but, you know, it was fun because I was selling computers. So I was doing that in the daytime and then playing in bands at night and then, you know, I was always playing in bands. So whatever was happening in the daytime, I was doing something else at night. So I always had a million things going on. Um, and uh, it's funny because at school, I think my teachers probably thought I was lazy. But it wasn't that I was lazy. I was just tired because I hadn't been to bed. Because I'd always be going all the way around the clock doing something. Um, and so you're doing this at home. And, and, and so when do you finally leave the house? Um, I left because uh, I moved to Italy. So I was going to go and try and get into like the World College or play violin. And, you know, was, this is the kind of moment I was realizing that I'm, you know, maybe not going to be a violin player. And I get this record deal with this band in Italy. And um, it, it's, I'd played in a band with friends of theirs and they were like, come to Italy, live in, you know. And I literally got on a plane. I mean, it's very easy in Europe. It's so close. I got on a plane. I don't really understand. What do you mean? You got a job with a band? I don't... I well, don't... I mean, I've been playing with this band. And, um, I know, but you said you got, like, a contract with a band. Like, what? who gets a contract with a band? Well, I just... I had... You know, they invited me into this band, and they had this record deal in Italy with this distribution. Oh, so they already deal. had the record deal. Yeah. And they offered you to participate in the financials of that record deal. Yeah, which was exactly... Uh, uh, nothing it turned out you know it was 20 percent of nothing but your parents were okay with you leaving at 17 or 18 years old i, I think my my dad couldn't have been happier <laughs> and um why is that because my dad had grown up around rock and roll so my dad actually grew up in the same town as pink floyd and i think actually even may have played on stage with them one night although we're not entirely sure if that's true um wow but uh so he was very into me being doing whatever i think my mom was probably just glad i was doing something and I, so i moved to italy i got on a plane and i moved to italy and we lived in a castle on a mountain in italy what how did how did that happen because the guy the piano player in the band's dad owned this castle and 
they had this like record deal where we'd like get these gigs every week and we'd release these albums really crazy experimental music i mean it was for literally no money I and mean, we'd have enough money just to live but it just didn't matter because we lived in this castle on a mountain in the most spectacular place i've ever seen in my entire life now i i would imagine um that if you do a show in a nightclub and you meet a woman afterwards and you get her back to your castle well i, I would imagine that if you can't get laid you might as well just hang up your dick and retire okay so the first thing i ever learned in italian was ciao sono simone abito in un castillo hi i'm simon i live in a castle and it was like <laughs> <laughs> you know and i learned italian i actually ended up speaking italian fluently i can't remember it now but i was i i spoke almost fluent italian because it was there were just the most incredibly beautiful women on earth and i was the only english person about 300 miles in any direction i lived now, in the, it was the middle of nowhere now does the the english accent do as well in italy as it does in the united states for women i literally thought i'd won the lottery because you know <laughs> i you know i i don't consider myself to be you know uh, you know you know, I'm not I'm, I'm a charming chap. I'm not the best-looking guy on earth. But as far as they were concerned... I think you are a good-looking... Oh, well, you're, like, you, you're, like you. you're like an English Peter Horton from right. 30-something. But, well, as far as I was concerned, I went from like a, a you know like a solid six and a half to like a <laughs> nine and three quarters <laughs> just because I was... I think he's talking about the rating of him as a person and looks, not his penis size. Well, so... It was it was like a miracle landing in Italy. Was li- it was literally like a miracle. I I couldn't believe it. So the first woman you brought back to the castle, you got lucky. It, every, I mean, it was just you could not underestimate how beautiful these girls are in Italy. They, they it's a different breed of human. They don't they don't look like anything else on earth. They are just amazing, and it was an amazing thing landing in Italy. And we played in this band. I don't even think I liked it that much, but I just loved living there. Now, were your bandmates pissed off at you that you were getting all the women? No, they were getting more than I was. Oh, they they were, were all getting more. They were, the, they were the worst. I mean, they, had, they all had seven or eight different girls each. Uh, one of them had a fiancé and many, many mistresses. And um, that was just what they did. And it was all sort of... It's funny, because even the ones that had permanent girlfriends, the girlfriends knew they were seeing other girls on the side. And in Italy, that was kind of fine. Like... It was just one of those things that everybody did. So um, I was still only lucky to get one at a time. I was just, you know, I was picking up the scraps, really. But, you know, uh, you know, the, the best looking girl I'd ever seen in my life was probably someone that was just, you know, average in their village. That's the thing. You know, I thought I'd struck it, you know, struck a gold mine. And it turned out that she was just, you know, that she was sort of like, the, you know, the, the six in Italian terms. But, according, you know, compared to London, she was a 20 out of 10. So Italy was... Italy was pretty spectacular. So you're there, you, you are living in the castle rent-free, uh, you're not making any money on the gigs, you're not making a percentage of the <laughs> record deal because there is nothing. How do you eat? How do you, if you want a girl and you want to take her out to lunch or something, how do you, or a cafe, how do you even do it? Well, I was a millionaire because it was the lira and everybody in Italy was a millionaire because there was about a gazillion lira to a pound. And it just was the most fantastic thing. You could have like a, a million lira, which I'm going to say <laughs> was like four pounds, in this little place. It was like you didn't need really any money. I mean, we were making money. Um, 
I don't know what we were making, maybe like $50 each a week or $100 a week. But That's you know, making money? But they, but they were, you know, like we were... Homeless guys on the corner make more than that. Wow. I mean, we didn't... I don't know. It just paid for the food and for the booze and for the... I don't know. The gigs paid for themselves and... You can't even keep yourself in condoms for that much money. Well, I mean, I don't know how we did it. I mean, it seemed fine at the time. <laughs> it really seemed fine. So how long are you in the castle and how long are you in Italy? And the, well, why would you ever want to leave? Uh, well, it would just, it, at the, you know, you kind of wake up from this dream one day and um, it's very, very, you know, like it gets into winter in Italy. It suddenly gets cold. It's a bit like, bloody hell, this is not so good. So it gets to winter and, um, and I'm not loving the music, to be honest. It's just, you know, but I've had the most amazing year. It was about a year in Italy. Did you ever write a song for them? Oh, lots, yes. It was a very, sort of, I mean... Lots of music, hundreds and hundreds of tracks and songs. Do you ever sing on a track? Very badly, yeah. I was sort of. But do you ever do the lead on one? Never, never lead. Okay. No, thank God. It was sort of. It was. It was a very experimental music. So you weren't like the kind of guy that you see in the like the video for Charlie Daniels with the uh, the 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 whatever the that song is the crazy right. thing from the south or what's yeah. The, What's the name of that song? Devil Went Down to Georgia. Yeah, but you're not that kind of guy. No. But you did that audition kind of guy when you did the other thing. Yeah. Yeah, got it. Okay, keep going. I'm sorry. So, so, I, so we were, I didn't love the music. So I, I got back to, I, you know, I came back to England and I told everybody back home. I'd gone for a year and, uh, you know, for a few friends I kept in touch with, you know, as far as they were concerned, I was a rock star in Italy. You know, I was gone off to make my fame and fortune in, in Italy in this rock band. And... um it was amazing. But I got back home. And I remember I got back in like, it was like November. And England's just miserable most of the year. But November is particularly miserable. And I had absolutely no money. So I had to go and work in a leather handbag store at the local mall. Now, do you move back with your parents? Yeah. So I moved back in with my parents. How old are you? It's probably like 20, Got 19. It. Now, that must have been... Uh bone crushing to your self-esteem to go back as a rock star and move back into your parents place. well i was never really a rock star I just but they thought, thought was, you were well they uh, they knew they, i mean they knew i was just out there having fun and playing music but but you know so i had to go and work in this leather handbag store and i remember like being behind the counter and like thinking i was seeing someone i knew coming through the mall and like ducking behind the counter <laughs> like i don't know why i was so embarrassed about it but it was just a means to an end and i hated it it's like it's like shopping in kmart here you basically shop out of fear that you're going to see somebody you know. Right. I mean, it was so... But I was always... I came back and I was still playing music. I was like, I got in another band. I mean, I was in so many bands. Probably in like a hundred bands over this period of time. Playing music. And some had deals. Some didn't have deals. Some had tracks on the radio. And I was playing sessions as well. Like I was actually... Like I was starting to make some better money. Uh, and this is when I had this crazy audition for this... For this, you know, this stage show. And I'd never done anything like it. So... I was just didn't really know what I was doing. And I'll just so you know, I'll put that story here. Right. So, okay. So, um, and I, I also was living in a railway arch uh, with a recording studio. We made the insane decision to open a recording studio in a railway arch in South London, in the Elephant and Castle, and um, which is like every five minutes, a train goes over the top, so you can't record. <laughs> I mean, so so we had this recording studio and I was living in London and we had very little money and it was still amazing like I definitely was having a lot of fun lots of amazing people um, 
people that I lived in this amazing little Georgian estate in uh, Kennington in South London. And so many famous people, like Charlie Chaplin, had lived, in, had lived there. Um, the the the, uh, the government tried to knock down the the estate, and uh, the estate formed a brass band and marched against the police rather than rioting. This before I moved in, so it was like this crazy commune of people that were just nuts. Uh, like Jamiroquai used to live there, and um, lots of sort of really now well-known electronic artists from London lived in this little gathering of people around this south london bit so i was sort of living there doing crazy jobs like selling computers and i said it's crazy it was crazy because it was just so nothing to do in my daytime thing and um and uh and selling leather handbags and loading boxes onto carts and um filing in the basement and um running errands for office people at the same time as making all this music Hey everybody, let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. So you get this gig this sort of West End kind of production that's traveling all over the country. And it's a real money gig for the first time in your life. And you're thrust into a show where you've never done a show like that, which is like that kind of a show. How do you handle that with the traveling and the, the actual structure of it all? Because you, technically speaking, led an unstructured life before this gig and now there's actually a schedule there's a production manager there's people there's directions there you have to go you can't improvise i was actually fine with it it was actually in myrtle beach south carolina so that's where they sent me got it so it went to one place the, the, they they had many versions of this show uh, and it's a fascinating side thing the guy that owned this show made tens and tens of millions of dollars well, from it. Well, tell us about this because I think, if I am not mistaken, you could argue that the first subliminal cell in your brain that eventually went on to do what we're going to talk about that you do now might have come from this man who hired you. Very much so. And brought you to Myrtle Beach. So talk about you got the gig they assign you with this particular show that is God knows in how many countries, how many variations of the show were there out there in the world? There were about 10. 10. So 
so this guy, I mean, I need to, he was sort of my mentor because he became my mentor in, in, uh, in, in show business. What's his name? Years. David King. Now, David King, he was in that room when you auditioned. He was there uh, sitting behind the table. And, um, now, did he ever tell you, because I always find this fascinating too for anybody out there listening, the audition process for anything is, is truly something that's amazing because none of us know. It, the, you can go on a job interview, let's say, at the CAA right across the street here. And you could have a great interview and you could be doing everything you think is right, but there's no evidence of anything. It's you and you're there with them. And in the end, there can be only one winner. There's only one place that I know of, at least in my business, where there can be more than one winner. And that's a sketch show. Like if you're if you're going up for Saturday Night Live you could be, if they're hiring five new cast members, you could be the fifth best and be on television. But normally, if you go into a law firm or you go into an assistant position at an agency or if you, even a job in a hospital as a nurse, there's only one thing that comes up and you have your interviews. And if you don't get it, very rarely does anybody tell you why you don't give it. They don't want to take the time. You know, when people ask me, you know, what's the feedback on that audition? Yeah, the feedback is you didn't fucking get it. That's the feedback. <laughs> right. And so did he ever tell you? Because obviously they auditioned a shitload of I people. Well, I, uh, can I tell you? I don't think they did. I, I, I don't think that there were many people willing to wear a leather jumpsuit and play violin on fire. And I got into his office and um, he was sitting behind a desk and I thought, shit, I need this job. I really need this job. So I jumped on the table and played the violin on his table. And I downloaded the music the night before from the show. I don't know how I remember. I can't remember how I got it. And I learned all the tracks on the show and that he was really impressed that I knew the music. Cause it, so I'd learned, I spent all night up learning the music. I got on the desk said, do you want to go to America? I said, yeah, I'd love to go to America. So it's 300 pounds a week. Do you want to go to America? I said, yeah. All right, you're going on Friday. Okay, that was it. Incredible. You know, I remember many of the people that I've interviewed on this show talk about the preparation for an interview. And I remember this one person who told me, he said he was going for an interview in Pennsylvania, and he studied the names of all the towns that were reached by this particular radio station in Pennsylvania or television station. And he made sure that he found out the correct pronunciation of every single town because he knew that that would impress them. <clears throat> and I asked him why he knew it was going to impress them. <clears throat> and he said there was one town that when you looked at it, there's no way you anyone in the world would ever think it was pronounced the way it was. So he thought, if I can just drop this name in here as I'm going, that will impress him. Sure enough, he did that, and the guy was like, how do you, how do you know how that's pronounced? You're not even from around here. Uh, well, I just wanted to do my research and be prepared for this, and that's what he feels got him the gig. And for you, you downloaded the stuff. Very few people would do that. And you learned everything and knew everything. And then 
the rest is history and that that move changed your life so you get to Myrtle Beach he's your mentor what happens there so um turns out that I sucked and um so there's this 2700 seat theater in Myrtle Beach South Carolina that he'd bought just bought it and um and uh, so he had this big show, Spirits of the Dance. And it turns out Spirits of the Dance is not Riverdance. It's a sort of knockoff version of Riverdance. And what happened is Riverdance came along with this show and he thought, great, look at this bloody thing. And he started his own show called Spirits of the Dance. And it was the same time that Michael Flatley was sort of leaving Lord of the Dance. And everybody just thought that this was Riverdance. And with a couple of careful ads that, were very well placed uh he you know 50 million dollars later or god knows how many he um you know he'd he had this global brand these irish dancing shows and um it was just incredible and it was overnight i mean he went from really not having much going on to having this incredible global brand of not even the right thing it's like a knockoff show um and i was the fiddler in a knockoff show in this 3,000 seat theater that he just bought in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. And it turns out that I wasn't very good. Uh, well, how do you know it turns out that you weren't very good? Well, I ended, you, up, you, I ended up being good, but it took me about a week because... Yeah, but you have the previews to the rehearsal. Oh no, this show was already going on. I was going into an existing show. Where was the fiddler from, the, where did he go? He was, he was going off to do another one of their tours. So I was gonna fill in from him. So well, didn't you understudy for him for a few weeks? It, the role was not just playing the notes. The role was you had to be like a complete lunatic on stage with a violin. I mean, you had to go yeah, but nuts. I, I would imagine you got to see him be a lunatic, and you saw a videotape, and you wanted to do it live, right? R- right, but it you know it's hard going from zero to a hundred in you know a day. So I re- I, I I sucked for about three days, and I realized. David was going to turn up and see it on the Friday. And I was like, so, and I just was like, fuck, I've got to, if I'm ever going to do it, now's the moment. So I just went nuts and the audience went nuts and it was great. Um, and he was like, you can stay. So, okay, I can stay. So, that so was in, the other first words, heard. in other words, his minions were telling him, this guy doesn't have the goods. You better come down and see this guy. Yeah. But, uh, but I pulled it out at the last minute and I, and I ended up being very good at it. Uh, and uh, and uh, and it was great, and I loved it, and it was an amazing gig, uh, and I travelled all over the world with it. Now it was a knockoff gig to River Dance. Did you feel like uh, did River Dance people stop going to that, and they went kept going to your show, or it didn't matter? It just did. He was this was playing sort of like the places that River Dance wouldn't get to, so it was playing, you know, pretty. I mean, it was in Vegas for ages. I, you know, I I mean, it's another. I lived inside the Golden Nugget for nine months of my life with this show, so um, you know I played I played all over the world with it. Um, I played in Israel, in Africa, China, New Zealand. I mean, I travelled around the world with this show. Um, well, I hope you're making a little more than four hundred bones by that point. I think I may have been playing. I think at the end I was getting five hundred pounds a week. Uh, he was probably charging me out about ten thousand um, dollars. But it just, Which is another lesson you learned for what we're going to talk about in the future. Well, you know, it just is what it is. It's a gig and I needed it. He was very good at understanding the people that needed the gigs and the people that didn't. But you were the lead. I was the lead. But, you know, he he uh, he just does not... 
he does he has a you know if, if he wouldn't pay more he's not the kind of person i'm the kind of person if someone if i really want someone i'll just pay them a lot of money to do it and we do um so he, but he, you're, like, you're there with the the other cast members and people talk right the first time you found out what you were making versus what somebody else was making what happened i was probably on more than they were but i mean it was you know it was a very low salary it just was what it was it was fine so you do this for about a year or two going all over the world and all different places and you're living out of hotel rooms uh-huh and you're the lead so it doesn't matter you're not uh, worrying whether you find italian women all sorts of women are you know are all over you so you're living the life again of a guy who's just uh, you won the lottery amazing life definitely an amazing first life. audition you ever do in your life you get the lead in a show right incredible great flying around the world with a cast of 25 single dancers and i'm the only non-gay male in the <laughs> cast take us through what that's like well it's just a matter of time you know, I mean, it's just, it's a numbers until game. You, until you turn or? No, until, you know, like, they might not like you on day one, but by, you know, like, three weeks into a tour, uh, <laughs> you know, it's it was it was an amazing, it was an amazing experience. We played all over the world. Um, the show was great. It was like a, you know, we played sold out arenas. I did 15,000 people in a square in Madrid. You know, we played some incredible gigs all over the world with this crazy Irish dancing show. It was amazing. And and the, and the thing about it was I was learning the business because I was on the back of the bus seeing how this thing was done. I was like, okay, so you've had an idea and a poster and you're literally, you've got your own bank here. It's like the printing your money. Um, and don't get me wrong, the show was good. If the show had sucked, he wouldn't have done it. Like it wouldn't have carried on. But the show was good and he was going to places that Riverdance wouldn't have gone to. And he had the most amazing poster most amazing commercial and he was going to places that you know wouldn't have ever had it i mean i remember going to south africa for the first time and river dance had never been there we effectively were river dance and um it was just they went nuts i mean the crowd would go completely bonkers sold out we did 21 shows in a week in israel and um but as you're doing these shows as a performer you're Cogs learning. are turning. The wheels are turning in your head, and you understand how business is done and how if you can figure out a way to have a great, great visual poster, and now it's more digital sometimes, and if you can figure out how to have a great radio ad and a great television commercial, sometimes that just gets them in the door. And the thing that people don't understand a lot of times is that, for instance, you know, when you were in Myrtle Beach, well, how many times does somebody go to a show in Myrtle Beach? 99.9% .9 of all the people that go to the shows go once. Right. So you just got to get somebody in there once. And then if it's a great show, one person tells 10 people, 10 people tell 100, 100 tell 1,000, 1,000 tell 10,000. And on and on and on, and you start basically putting your money into piles and uh, finding the Italian girls. Right. 
And so, so you're learning this process from the back of the bus of how this guy does it. So you're living in a hotel, but you know what the toughest part is in anything in life when you're in something that's comfortable is giving up that life and making the transition to another life doing things. And, and that's really because you're comfortable. After every show, there's women everywhere. You're making money. You're living in a hotel. You don't have to pay rent. You don't have to pay for your food. And can I tell you, I saved all my money. So every pa- I didn't really spend a lot of money. I mean, we had the hotels and the food paid for. I was earning, you know, nothing a week, but I was I was saving it. That nothing, that little bit of nothing, that 500 pounds a week, uh, times 40 weeks in a year, I was saving all of it. Um, and a lot of people were going out and spending on booze, you know, going out every night and going, going crazy. And I didn't, I saved it. And it wasn't a lot, but it gave me what I needed because I got to South Africa and the show went to, it came to South Africa, big tour, and um, I uh, fell in love with a, a girl in South Africa. And I was like, shit, I really like it here. I want to stay in live in South Africa. Had you ever fallen in love with a girl before that you wanted to be a part of your life? Many, many times, yes. But but this was definitely like, shit, I want to stay here. So I came up with an idea for a show. I was like, I'm going to do African river dance. I'm going to make a version of river dance like this, but it's going to be African. And it's going to be amazing. And I'm going to create this show. And I'm going to stay here. I'm going to marry the girl. And I did it. So I I found this crazy African troupe of dancers that dance with gumboots on. I'd never seen anything like it. It was like a... Like a Explain sp- to our audience if they don't know what gumboots are. What do you call them here? Wellington boots. Um, what, do you, what do you wear when you're going through muddy river? Like a kind of... You know, this, it's rubber well, boots. if you're in the 40s, you call them galoshes. Yeah, galoshes. They're kind of these. It was like these. It was these rubber boots these African dancers wear, and they slap the boots while they're dancing, and it's like this incredible rhythmic. It's like a, it's like a steam train coming. It's incredible. So I saw this thing. We were in Johannesburg with Spirit of the Dance in this theater. So I, I, I got the theater in the daytime, and I paid the lighting guy a couple of hundred dollars. And I, I, got, I got some video guys to come in. I filmed this promo for this show, African River Dance. And um, I made this promo. I made a poster. I made a video. But you made it from the dance and the show that they already put on? Or you created a storyline for the show and told them to do it that way? Well, I was just making a promo. So I was doing what David did. I was making a poster and a commercial. There was no show. But you didn't have a show. How can you make a poster or a promo? Well, I had, all the, I had all the African dancers. So I brought them all in and I filmed 10 seconds of each number. So I pretended we had a show and we filmed 10 seconds of this number, 10 seconds of that number, 10 seconds of that number. I put a soundtrack to it. We had a crazy lighting rig because Spirit of the Dance was on that stage at night. And I filmed this promo. Um, and I went to the guy that ran the theater. After, you know, he knew I was doing this. I was like, what do you think of this? And he loved it. I was like, oh my God, it's amazing. So I managed to go out because I was like a Z-list celebrity in South Africa at this point because I was playing fiddle for Spirit of the Dance. Um, so I could go out and sort of meet people after the show and there were sort of, you know, it was one of the only shows that had been to South Africa. So I could open a few doors from playing the fiddle. Um, and I managed to raise the money to put this show on. And, um, and this is a very long-winded story. Basically, in the, in the course of the next 18 months, not only did I raise the money, 
but I got one of the original composers from Lion King to create the soundtrack. South African tourism to put all the money inside it. A 12-week run in the biggest theatre in Africa and following a, a West End run in London afterwards. And I created this show and it had 130 people in it. I raised a shit ton of money. I but Simon, tell our audience how you raised the money when you didn't have a show. Well, I did have a show. I had the idea of the poster and the marketing. That's all you need. What? What do you mean that's all you need? People actually have to go and they have to see a 90 to 120 Yeah, but we were, we were create, I was, the, the creating the show is not the difficult bit. That, that's, it's not? No, that's the easy bit. The, the hard bit is coming up the idea that people will come and see. Creating that poster and that moment and that piece of amazing imagery. So it's like when you see, every time you see like a poster for Alvin Ailey Dance Company, there's some woman in the air with her legs and different zip codes and you're like, I got to see that one. Well, it's more than that. It's, it's like this, like TV shows. You see a poster for a TV show, a snip for a TV show. Like when you see... A, 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 a slip for Breaking Bad as a viewer you haven't seen the show yet you've seen the 30 second sizzle and the poster and you're like shit I want to see that so what I do is I create these amazing moments of things that people want to see but you'd never done it before well you... I had I'd done it on the back of the bus I'd seen someone else do it You'd seen somebody else do it, but you never done it. When do you have time? You're actually doing a show for another the guy. The show is 20 minutes a day. The show, for my part, was 20 minutes a night. Does he know what you're doing? Yeah, he didn't care. He, he was didn't great. Care. He was like, Ap spread your wings, make millions of dollars, you'll make me proud. He didn't say, motherfucker, why don't you ask me to be a partner or something? I don't think he had the time of the day. He was off running his empire of 300 dancers, 10 shows around the world. Got it. So you get the people to fund it, not yep. your money. You get other no. people's money. Well, I put I put all my money in. So I'd saved all this money What's, for a couple of years. How much did you put in? Probably thirty or forty thousand pounds. Thirty forty thousand pounds. And how much did everybody else put in? What did you need for a total to to launch this thing? What like on Broadway, for instance? For those of you who don't know, and it's fascinating, is that the way the structure of Broadway works, the coalition of Broadway theater people on the board they don't allow you to open a show unless you have i believe it's it's between two and 2.5 million in an escrow account to prove that you can go a run unless it's a limited run and in limited runs it's less but i believe you have to at least have a million in an escrow account to get the approval to even go forward they're not going to allow you to do it so for you for a show like this to be able to put it up for how many weeks in South Africa and then the West End, you needed a certain amount of money to fund this thing. Right. So I had I had uh, uh, two key investors plus tourism money, theatre money, lots of promises, ifs and buts. But what was the total? Like o over a million dollars in an escrow nothing. account. Well, yeah. I mean, it's all. It was all giving a million dollars to a guy who was making four hundred to five hundred pounds a week as a fiddler. Right. How did you convince people to give you a million dollars when you'd done nothing? Well, I had done something. I'd come up with the idea and I came up with the sales and the pitch and the poster and the theater and the idea. So I know, but you were still a guy who never executed it. Right. Well, it's funny you say never executed it because the next part of this is that so we're now, I'm going to rewind here to eight weeks before the show opens, right? So now it's getting heavy. 
there were 130 people employed and suddenly this thing's got bigger than me i was out of my depth and there was lots of african investors and crazy people and people i can't name on here um involved and they i was this just this you know crazy 22 year old white kid from they realized they kind of they kind of called me out you know a year into this thing they realized that i'm i'm just a fiddle player i mean it was still my idea it was still legally mine i still owned it so they're trying to you know so they want to take over this thing and so they're like okay well we're just going to pay you out you can still be a part of it we're going to pay you out you you know you'll be a part of it we want to run this thing um it's going to be our show now and i was like fantastic this is great this is a ton of money i'm 22 years old and i still get to keep part of the show first experience you know it is what it is i'm going to i'm going to end up with a lot of money from nothing so as far as i'm concerned i didn't care miracle okay stop right there so are you still dancing in the other show while no this is- no okay. this is 18 months got it okay all right so so it shocks me knowing you the way i know you that you would ever take a check to walk away well i really was running out of money at this point so this was a lot of money being offered and it was like okay what did, what did they offer you well it was it was going to be millions so to walk away and um, how was it going to be millions you only had two gigs set up well it was a lot of promises so you know this kinda thing like in, the band in italy kind of like the band 50 percent of fuck all so but it was it was a very it was an amazing sort of moment where you know they realized that i had you know i legally owned this thing and they would rather take control of it and as far as they were concerned this thing was going to run for 10 years it was going to go because it was a good idea and the show was great um so you know we're in the final process of buying me out before the show had even opened so this has gone from like we haven't even opened the show yet final process of it so i'm sitting on this beautiful hill overlooking the johannesburg zoo and um, i'm sitting with my then girlfriend who i you know this is the girl i was going to spend the rest of my life with and i'm drinking champagne and i'm thinking that i'm really the king of the world i've come up with this idea i've the show's about to open i've made a shit ton of cash it's all great and i get the phone call we're now five days before the show opened full rehearsals are done billboards are on the motorway and the investor died of a heart attack and they phoned me his what his uh, uh wife phoned said Siva's died it was just unbelievable and i realized in a quarter of a second that it was all gone everything and the show didn't open we cancelled all the money that was in these accounts to be spent on the show and to buy me out all frozen um just disaster everybody it was just a disaster and uh and and, and most of all the investor was a good friend and so at the bottom of this, he was a good friend and he had two beautiful little babies and uh, and he died. And that was that. So we had nothing. So uh, we didn't open. And then there was a huge fight about who owned it and it was in all the papers and it was just terrible. I had to go and tell the f- sort of 50 dance. There was like 50 singers and dancers in a show plus an orchestra. 
and I had to go and tell them all that they didn't they didn't have any more work. And these aren't just singers and dancers; these are shanty town kids, right? These are people living in like literally tin boxes. And I walked into the rehearsal, and they were all holding shields and spears, African shields and spears, because that was the dance they were doing. And I got to the front, I was like, and these guys I'd kind of like found a year before, so. They knew me very well and I'd come up with this idea and got them and got them this job and they'd been rehearsing. We're going to open the show. And I said, look, it's over. He's, he's died. And that's what it was. And they were all fine. They would like, they were just completely fine. And, um, and but, then, but you had invested every penny you had into it. Yeah. So I had, I had $4,000 left in cash and, um, I had to go to down Joburg's by the way, a very dangerous place. Like it's a very, very highly dangerous place people get shot every day i lived in this gated compound in this amazing house and um which was fine but it was it was it is a dangerous place you don't stop at traffic lights at night people get shot it's it's crazy great but crazy and um so anyway so it dragged on like the show didn't open it was just awful and um and you know i'm living i moved back in with my girlfriend's parents and um who, who don't like me very much at all um compounded by the fact that i'd sort of whisked their daughter away you know to live this life of show business i was like this young guy who come in and you know you know it was amazing and now i'm you know living with the parents and um i think i ran over the mum's cat as well which didn't help um <laughs> and lied about it um uh so none of it was good to be honest and then it could life couldn't have been any worse like i'd 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 lost the money i'd lost the show i'd run over the girlfriend's mother's cat Things were looking pretty bad. And then I got hijacked at gunpoint and my car got stolen. Well, it wasn't my car. It was her car. I didn't have a car because I had no money. And um, with my last $4,000, I gave some of it to her to buy a new car. And I bought a plane ticket home to England. (laughs) So you left her in South Africa? Yeah. I I went back to England because, and you're going to love this, I phoned David King and said, I need a job playing fiddle because I've run out of money. He said, great. I've got a Spanish tour coming up. <laughs> Come back and play the violin. So I did. So I got back on the bus and I toured around Spain. And um, then the girl left me from South Africa. Of course, money ran out. Girl ran out. Uh, and um, Well, that's a, so you're at your lowest point. Well, no, the lowest point was... Um, just before when I got back and I really had nothing I the only thing I had left in the world was my drum kit that was stored in my parents shed and I had to sell it because I needed some money it was a really nice drum kit and I remember driving in my mum's car with a kit loaded in the back and I met this guy on the side of a road and I loaded this drum kit into his car and he gave me like 800 pounds or something it was worth so much more but it was the only person I could find to buy it and at the last minute it was like yeah, I've only got 600. And I had to take it. Oh. I was like, fuck, he just knew. I was like, oh my God, are you kidding me? So I get back on the bus and I play fiddle. And um, we did a Spanish tour, which was a different city every day, um, which was amazing. And I was like, and the girl dumped me. I was heartbroken. Um, but 24 hours later, I had a new girlfriend. And it was like medicine. It's like, take this three times a day and you'll be fine. And I was. <laughs> Because she was a girl in the show, she was a dancer in the show, and she was amazing. And um, 
I would, you know, it was just like it was like it was the kind of you know the rebound, but it was an amazing. I think we were both rebounding, so we were, and and eventually she um after this Spanish tour, so I get back on my feet. I'm earning five hundred pounds a week again, you know, traveling around Spain on the bus playing, playing uh, the violin, and the show ends up in Monte Carlo. So, I move to Monaco, which is for anyone that doesn't know it's the, the 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 French Riviera, and. Uh, so I go and li- and I, w- I I I wasn't actually playing in the show then. She was in the show. David had a gig at this Monte Carlo casino, and um, so I I just I was like, okay, so do I be unemployed and miserable in London, or do I go and live with a showgirl in a penthouse in Monte Carlo? So I moved to Monte Carlo, which is the most spectacular and amazing place to see. You know, it's just it's billionaire heaven. I mean, it's it's a small little town, but it's you know it's a good hangout for someone who's reasonably unemployed to live with a, a beautiful girl and who do i bump into david king and he says you never guess what i need a new show for my theater in myrtle beach south carolina because that spirit the dance isn't selling any tickets anymore do you want to make me a circus i was like yeah i'll definitely make you a circus so i am um, do you want to make me a circus yeah he's he, he's decided that we're going to make a Cirque du Soleil type show because Cirque du Soleil so is the new hot show. So he wants to rip show. off Cirque du Soleil. Well, that's a strong, strong. It was there was a lot of different Cirque shows. I'm sorry. I'm done. I, let me rephrase that. So he wanted to rip off a Cirque du Soleil. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. So he wanted to be in a situation where he he created something that was similar that could like he did before. And he had this huge theater, Myrtle Beach, and the Spirit of the Dance wasn't selling any tickets anymore. So lo and behold, the next week I'm on a plane to China to find my cast for the Cirque show. But again, Simon, the guy's betting on you and you've never done it before. Well, I've nearly done it this time because I nearly had a show on stage. I just didn't deliver. But you've never cast Cirque performers. Never, but that's okay. So we we fly to China and... um. And we fly to China. Is and he I, flying first class and you coach? He, no, he doesn't come. He sends me to okay, China. Got it. So I go with my friends. We fly to China into the middle of nowhere. And we go and see these different performers. And we find this troupe of 35 Chinese acrobats in Harbin in China. It's minus 40. And they're in this massive warehouse. And they're freezing. And we go to China and we cast this show. And, um, and I... Uh, come up with the costumes i come up with the music i change all the acts i create a complete show around them how much money does david king give you as your budget to get the show off the ground and how much money does he give you now to create the show per week as opposed to what you were making as a fiddler i was still on 500 pounds a week why did you take the gig and leave your girlfriend in a penthouse in monaco for 500 dollars a week well, the girlfriend in Monaco phoned me one day and said, I've got something awful to tell you. And she was distraught. I said, what is it? And she said, now she's in tears. And she said, I've, I've been seeing someone else. And I said, okay, who is it? And she said, it's the Prince of Monaco. And I said, what's he got that I haven't? <laughs> and I promise you that's exactly what I said. <laughs> and and that was that. So I was now back to being unemployed and um and uh you know needing a gig. So I did it. Had you ever been unfaithful to her? 
probably probably not because I didn't have time because I was still doing a million other things. So none of this was ever... When I say I'm unemployed, I'm back playing in bands, I'm playing violins, I'm organising parties, I'm making posters, I'm selling the leather, leather handbags, I'm taking over the world. I mean, I'm always being industrious and always having enough money coming in to just support what I'm doing. Uh, so I go off to China and make, make this Cirque show, a massive Cirque show. It was 35 Chinese acrobats, uh, a Brazilian Wheel of Death team, that do these crazy stunts, 12 dancers and a dog act. And, <laughs> and we open and I come up with the poster and the marketing and all the rest of it. And the slogan is Le Grand Cirque, kids $10. And it literally printed money. It was unbelievable. The show just sold. We were doing 15,000 people a week off the back of a poster and a great TV spot that we made. And the show was great. We made a great show. It was a really great family show in a tourist resort in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. And uh, Still making 500 a week? Started paying me a bit more when the, when the money came in. So I think it may have doubled the money at that point. And, um, and what was your role there? So I started running the theater as well. So I wasn't just put, putting the show on. I realized that the theater was just a disaster. Like the cut the people he'd employed to run it so i started running the theater as well uh, so i fired everybody but you created the show right now normally in our town here in hollywood when you create a show you put it down on paper you put your name on it you go to the writers guild of america and you register it online or in person and you own it and you are the creator, and no matter what happens, you can be fired, whatever, you will get paid for the rest of your life. Why did you not register the idea in your name? He was just paying me to create a show, and I did. That's but what it said, was. But you said you lied before, and you did things before. You lied about running over a cat. Why didn't you write it down and register it? Just what it was. It was an opportunity to... to you could still have the opportunity. It just, I don't know. It was what it was. So when you saw this thing go up, printing money, chances are the guy's probably making in Myrtle Beach, conservatively, at least $100,000 a week, maybe as much as $250,000 a week. And you're making 1000 Right. How did you feel? I don't know. I was all right about it. Because as far as I was concerned, I had the most amazing opportunity ever in the history of the world because I was an unemployed violin player and I'd just written a huge circus and I was running a theatre. And it was like, are you fucking kidding me? This is amazing. So you looked at it as like, this is my college education. I'm 24 years old and I'm running a 3,000-seat theatre. I can do whatever the hell I want. I'm running this town. I mean, it was amazing because... I hired the people, I ran the staff, I spent, did the marketing, I, you know, I did everything. And uh, it was an incredible few years. So then how do you finally transition into being a guy who does it without anybody else successfully? What's the first thing? Well, that show, um, that show ended up being, um, we, had, we ended up having five versions of that show and it played all around the world. 
And so that was the first time I met my business partner, Tim Lawson. And uh, he booked the show into the Sydney Opera House in Australia. So he was a booking agent. He was just known as a producer, but he had a relationship with them. He came and saw our show. He's like, this could work in Australia. So I created a version of the show for them. David did not want me to do it. And he told me uh, it was for no, it was for, the deal was in Australia that we were going to do the show for practically break even. But there was a lot of money to make if it sold tickets. But really, we had to go. I had to put six months of energy into this thing to make it because it was, I had to almost create a new version of the show just for them. And, um, and I had to put six months of time in. But really, there wasn't going to be a huge amount of money. There could be no money at the end of it, but we wouldn't have lost any money. And I flew to Sydney and I landed to have the meeting and I got a phone call from him. He said, get on the plane, come back home, don't do the deal. There's no money in it, forget it. And I met them and I realised that it was January at the Sydney Opera House. It was my show. There was a bloody big opportunity. So I signed the contract. Okay, so here it is. You are willing to do things that are a little bit unorthodox and where you don't have full disclosure for people and so you're realizing what you have to do you sign the contract but are you authorized to sign the contract probably so it's his show he's very very upset so the, the, the so ultimately he sends me an email and says it's your neck on the block like does that mean that you can do it but you lose, you lose, you make, you make, it's your show? No, it means it means that if this is a fuck up and, you know, you're going to be responsible. Like, it was definitely not a happy email. It was a, you know, this is definitely your fault. So I'm going to fast forward six months later to the show opening. Uh, I did 66 hours with no sleep. Uh the show I didn't even know that was possible. Uh the show could not have been more behind because the Sydney Opera House is an incredibly difficult building to work in because it's not a theatre, it's a concert hall and it's difficult and there's actually more than one venue inside. Yes. Amazing venue. And I realised that my entire career is on the line. And lo and behold, bloody thing sells out and we sold forty thousand tickets in a week or whatever it was. And I phoned him on opening night. I said, David um, show's sold out. What, tonight? I said, no, the whole season is sold out. I said, are we going to make some money? I was like, you're going to make a lot of money. He said, didn't I tell you not to do it? I said, you definitely told me not to do it. And, um, and, th and that was, uh, that was the, ch that was the changing point for the show and for me. And so I flew home to London and I went to see him with a big check. And, um, what was the amount of that check? Hundreds of thousands. And I went to see him with a big check and he said, what did I say I was going to give you? I said, well, you didn't actually say you're going to give me anything. He said, what do you think you deserve? I said, well, I think I deserve a lot because you told me not to do it. He said, okay, you write down on that bit of paper what you think you deserve. And I'm going to write down on this bit of paper over here what I think you deserve. Okay, now I want to stop you here because I want you, even though you don't want to, I want you to tell me what that check was. What was the amount of money on that check? 500,000. The person who you're meeting with thought it was going to break even or lose and told you not to do it. You made an executive decision. He was pissed off. He told you basically you're going to be fired 
if this goes south or you're going to be in deep shit. You do it. You bring him a check for found money for 500000 He says, write down on a piece of paper, sort of like, you know, uh, Lou Grant and Mary Tyler Moore in that famous episode. So you write down what you wanted, what percentage. Would you write down a percentage? You write down a number. number. Okay, so you write down a number. He writes down a number. Who shows whose paper first? We both showed at the same time. And I'm not going to tell you how much it was. And it and and it was both the same number. Really? Yeah. And that was the start of me uh, winning. Now, to be honest with you, you don't have to tell me the number, but I'll share this with our audience. We can all play a little game here. It's a very wonderful game, and I hope you don't mind me doing this in front of you. Of yourself. course. So, we all know that the number... Uh, we can eliminate 50 numbers <laughs> because it's not going to be 51% and it's not going to be 100%. So right away we eliminate that because nobody's going to write down on a piece of paper that guy across the table who's a multimillionaire who knows he's got anything he wants by the balls is not going to write down, here, you take 75%, I'll take 25%. So right away, we've eliminated half of the numbers. It is nowhere f between 51 and 100%. Let me tell you another number, a few numbers we can eliminate, okay? If you're Simon Painter and you realize you gave this guy money, okay, you're never going to be in a situation where it's going to be 1% to 10%. It's never going to be 11% to 20%. At best, if he's conservative, it's going to be 25%. And at the most, if he's a smart man, which I think he is, he would say, look, I busted my fucking ass here for this amount of time. This is what I want. And chances are, what I will say is, that number, if it is Simon, it's somewhere probably between 33 and 50%. And if he was being conservative maybe 25 so that's where it stands and that's where it is but t when you're making a situation like that and you're in that position everybody what i should share with you is this there is never any reason not to write down the highest number you can and in that instance the highest number when you're sitting across from a guy who's a multi-millionaire who doesn't have to give you anything who doesn't have a contract even if you believe that you deserve more than 50, the highest number you can write down is 50. And there's nothing that can happen poorly to you by writing down that number except the guy saying no. And so why not go for it? And that's all I'll say, and you continue with your story. I agree. I agree. Always ask. You can only ever say no. So so that was the start of me winning. And... um. And it, after, you know, many, many years of it being like a real, you know, college education. See, I, I saw all of it as a college education that I wasn't paying for. And I was saving money. I mean, all these 500 pounds a week were adding up because I was, I've always lived frugally. I've never bought, you know, crazy things, never had ex massive expenses. Even today, I live very, very frugally. And, um, and, and, and that's important to me because I know what it's like when it's all gone. And, uh, and you never ever want to go there 
So take us now, let's fast forward ahead because I don't want to take up too much of your time. And tell us how you created the show of The Illusionists, this magic show, knowing that you've been doing dancing and Cirque shows and things like that and magic is a completely different animal. What was the inspiration for it? Tell us how you got it on its feet, how you got the money to get it going, and what happened when you did. Uh, well, uh, so I did five years of this circus thing. Uh, and we, we, the, the show made a lot of money. It went all around the world. And it was an amazing learning experience because after we'd been to the Sydney Opera House, we had a great relationship in Australia. The shows kept on touring. And we were always making people a lot of money. And so I was learning really about it, what the most important thing is to, to give the audience what they want. Like you're basically producing these posters of, and then following up with amazing quality products. So did he give you the same percentage on every show? Yeah. Got it. And, um, and it was, um, so eventually I decided to leave, you know, I was sick of writing these massive checks and he was sick of, you know, me just, I was going off on my own. I was like on a different tangent and, David and I see very differently about the world. Like he, he's very comfortable in his market of very, very comfortable making these shows for like secondary markets. And there's nothing wrong with that. He makes high quality shows for secondary markets, but we didn't see eye to eye about many, many different things. And it was getting frictious. So I decided to leave and, um, and he decided he didn't want me. It was like a, a, a mutually agreeable relationship that I should just go. So I left and I moved to L.A. And um, and I had other friends and partners here, and we, you know, I had sort of ongoing things that I was doing with this Cirque show, and so I just we phoned up all these different venues, and I decided that um, I'd phone my friend at the Sydney Opera House that all those years ago I'd done a, such a good job with this circus, and and we and I formed a partnership with my my very very close friend Tim by that point, and uh, they wanted something to fill in for their January slot, and. Um, They'd already booked another show, but it's like, just on the off chance it doesn't work out, what have you got? I said, I've got an ice skating show, a variety show, or a magic show. He said, what's the magic show? I said, well, I think it's called The Illusionists. And the idea is I'm going to get these 12 guys, and they're going to be like the best of the best of what they do. Because I'd seen a lot of magic at that point um, over the years, you know, and I loved it. And it was just, for me, it's like circus, it's an act. I said, okay, cool, well, make, make me a poster, make me a, pro you know, make me a poster, make me a promo. So it always comes back to that. So it took me about a week and I made a poster and a promo, um, which was the very, very first idea of 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 um, of what this show was. And at this time I was living in LA, I had a lot of other stuff going on. I mean, I was I was consulting for lots of different companies and um, and I was doing well. Like I was I was certainly on the road to success um, and turns out the show they were going to book didn't come through. And so they took a punt on the illusionists and. Um, and we decided to put it on. And the only way we could afford to put it on for the money that they wanted to pay was to load it in in two days. This is a brand new show from scratch, launching at the Sydney Opera House, and we had to load it in in two days. So um, so we spent the next six months making it. And that's when I say making it, that was me in my kitchen with you know all our creative team that had worked on all these other shows for us, putting together this show, finding magicians, um, you know, casting it, creating it, trying to work out the best way of doing it, you know. And we did it for us, we did it very, very cheaply. You know, we cut every corner we could to get it in for the budget. 
Uh, and again, um, you know, just like five years earlier, we loaded in in two days. I didn't sleep for 66 hours. The show opened and it sold out. Um, and that was that was the first two weeks of The Illusionists. And it sold $3 million of tickets in nine days. Unbelievable. And uh, And that was really... So that was really a very big turning point for me. And the magicians were all unknown magicians. Absolutely. So the the the, the strength was in the poster. It was in the um, it was the collection of these guys um, together that made it uh, that made it great. And the title. And, and who the were some of the magicians that are were in that show that are still in the shows that you're doing today? Yes, there are four of them are still there out of the seven. And they are. Dan Sperry. Dan Andrew Sperry, Basso. if you don't know Dan Sperry, he's like a a goth looking magician who uh is shock I would like to call it shock value magic. Uh Kevin James, the inventor. Kevin James the inventor. Kevin is famous for doing a uh a cut in half and uh, and the body is cut in half of another person and uh miraculously the body comes together. But it's the greatest cutting a half of all time. Yeah. I mean, it's not like when you say cutting a half, it's not like a hammy, magic-y cutting a half. It's like a legitimate miracle. It's a legitimate miracle, the cutting in half. The thing, do you mind talking, me talking about magic a little bit? Because sure. These are things that I, I obviously have a huge magic lineage because right. my uncle was the number one expert on Houdini in the world and owned the water torture case and the milk can and and 80% of all of Houdini's things from his brother Hardeen. I'm in the audience. I'm a casual observer of the trick. And it's so obvious to me what's happening with the end part of the trick. I just don't understand why the audience even buys it. I mean, a guy, the, the trick itself, fantastic, wonderful. Then the guy sort of goes off stage for 30 seconds with the guy cut in half, comes back on, and he's miraculously together. It's like, and people are like, this is genius. Right. Well, I agree with you on that part. But why doesn't the audience understand what that that's, this is ridiculous. You or I could go and do that with it. Not that we can't do the cutting in half. But you and I could do a trick where we go off stage and we come back and we fix it and we do it like... Well, I think the first half is still such a miracle that it doesn't matter. So him, the second guy, Andrew Besser, is the guy that... Uh, that's the guy who... Uh, what does he water do? Water cell. He does that's the, right. He does the Houdini water torture uh, trick, which is a fantastic, which for those of you who uh, know anything about Houdini, the whole concept of Houdini was uh, we're going to see him die. Basically, you know... People went to see if is this guy going to die or not, and he and he does it with no covers, and he does it with no covers, and and the reason why the water torture trick isn't done by a lot of magicians and illusionists in the country and the world, there's probably about five who do it. There's a woman who does it really well in a circular tube. Is the fact that you have to be upside down underwater getting out of a thing you have to learn how to hold your breath probably because uh, it's hard to hide a certain the breathing devices a lot of times so people there are people who do the trick where they hold their breath uh, or they do something where they 
I'm not going to go into it because I don't want to spoil the trick. But the, the point being is that regardless, even if they have a breathing tube somewhere hidden in them, you have to be upside down in water. And if you've ever been upside down in water, it's very hard to keep the water it's, from it's going ridiculous. into your lungs. So he does four minutes. He's legitimately handcuffed in. And it's real. I mean, the first night we did it, he drowned at the Sydney Opera House. First night at the Sydney Opera House, Andrew Basso drowned on stage. We shut the curtain and dragged him out. True. We tell the story in the show and everyone's like, yeah, you're telling it for dramatic effect. We didn't know what we were doing. And I didn't, we didn't realise that that action of him looking like he was drowning. I thought he was, I thought he was just being very Italian, like very over the top. And it actually turns out he was drowning. Take us through that moment and that night and what was happening. Where are you and what? how do you realize something's horribly wrong? I realized something's horribly wrong when... Uh, and it's sold out. Sold out, yeah. When, um, when the curtain starts closing because I realized that it really has gone on too long and they wouldn't be closing the curtain unless something was going on and I see the crew rushing in there to break the top of the cell to get him out and then i rush back it's really hard to get back from where i was to backstage but it turns out he's fine like he is fine like he was just about to drown and die but they got him out and he was totally fine and then act two happens and he does it again and he gets in and he escapes and the crowd go absolutely nuts so um he went in again he went in again because he was so embarrassed because it was like he was his opening performance so and remember what we talked about at the beginning of the show. I'm talking about a guy not going to see Jerry Weintraub because he has a cold or an infection. This guy almost drowns, and it's a sold-out crowd, and he knows that if he doesn't give them what they want, the word on the street is is that he can't do it, and he's not a valuable performer, and he's not worthy. He almost drowns and he goes back in and does right. it. And it's so important to do that. I mean, like, you know, if there's ever a moment where you have to stay up all night, you stay up all night. You know, you have to sacrifice absolutely everything. And uh, it's, uh, you just got to go for it with everything. There's never a time where you say no. Never. You just always do it. Like, there's, the worst thing that can happen is that you can get it slightly wrong. That's it. And it just amazes me. I gave a job to a girl to be like a, to, to sort of choreograph this thing for my show and she moaned and she moaned after I'd given her the job um, you sure that wasn't because you slept with her I definitely didn't sleep with her and um, and I just sort of you know it just made me think like you might be right about the moaning but the thing is this I'm never ever going to use you again because you're moaning about something that no one else has ever moaned about and you just have to see everything as an opportunity. And, you know, if you have to stay up all night or work extra hours or, you know, isn't the point that you win at the end of it? Like, this is the moment. Like, you have one fucking shot at getting this right. You have one moment to succeed. And it's not just about doing okay. Like, the reason we're successful in what we do is because everybody wins. The promoter wins because they make a shit ton of money. We win because we make money. The acts win because they're employed and they make money. Like, everybody wins. But it takes everybody to have an extraordinary effort in order to do that. Like, doing it half-heartedly or three-quarters or 90% never gets there. Like, 
it just takes blood, sweat and tears from every member of a team to make something really successful. Like, and that's that. There's no other way. There's no like lucky bullet or, you know, quick corner you can cut to, to get there. You've just got to pour yourself into it and try and try and try. But this is the same story I'm sure that hundreds of people have told on your show. I mean, I've met a lot of successful people when, when you get to the bottom of it, it's like, how do you get there? They're like, I worked like a donkey for 25 <laughs> years and I compromised absolutely everything. And finally, the door broke and I came in. And that's the story, right? And and you've got to be good at it. So, And the fourth act that you've kept? Uh, Jeff Hobson. Jeff Hobson. Awesome. Who's the funniest man ever. He's a fascinating guy. It's almost like he's... I don't know if he's pretending to be, uh, you know, certain acts you don't know if they're gay, straight, asexual, but he has this effeminate quality about him that's endearing and wonderful. He's and like the magician Liberace. He's just, uh, he's just insane. Absolutely. My favorite act of all time is Jeff Hobson. Absolutely. And I tell him every day. Absolutely. That's fantastic. I know you have thousands of stories. And so what I want to do is I oftentimes say sometimes is like, I want to hear that holy shit moment that no one would ever conceive. What would that be? I'll give you two if you want, and even three if you want to spend a little bit of time. Okay, it's not really a story about me, but it is a crazy story about our industry that I think you'll enjoy. I'm sure we will. So, and this is like, maybe I find it inspirational because it just shows you the lengths that people go to do stuff. When you, you know, like the lengths that people have to work to sort of succeed. So I had this circus and we had a dog act in the circus. and It was amazing. This guy had amazing dogs and we became very close friends. And uh, you want to tell our audience what kind of dog act it was? He had like poodles that used to, cats that used to ride poodles that used to run around the stage in jackets on their hind legs. It was a wh- amazing act. And uh, we, at intermission, we used to sell pictures of the poodles with to the kids in the audience so the act paid for itself which was amazing in fact the act more than paid for itself so i said to him he came he goes to rush he goes he's from moscow so every christmas he goes back to moscow and he comes back he's like i have seen the greatest act of all time i was like oh my god what was it it's like okay so i was at this crazy circus in moscow and bearing in mind he's an animal trainer so he knows everything about animal training and he goes to this circus 12 Silver balls get rolled out into the ring. Silver balls. Giant silver balls, like five foot high. S- silver, circular kind of circus balls. This cage gets put up, and 12 Siberian tigers jump out and onto the top of the balls. This crazy Russian conductor comes into the middle of the circus ring and starts conducting. Tchaikovsky starts playing, and the tigers start moving round the ring in time with the music on top of the balls and they go round in a circle they come together in the middle they form a star and my dog act is like this is the greatest act of all time i'm never ever going to realize this kind of thing in my act i mean this is ridiculous and he, the crowd stand up and go wild which for a russian audience is unheard of they normally just sit there and rhythmic clap greatest act of all time and he goes home that night and he's ha- having a beer with his friend who knows about the show. And he's like, I, I'm going to give up. I will never get to this point. And he said, but you must realize what the trick is. And he's like, 
what do you mean? I was there. I saw it. There were real tigers. I can't believe you didn't realize what it was. I said, well, I said, there's midgets inside the balls. The tigers are just sitting on top. The midgets are trying to go with the music. And that's how it works. (laughs) (laughs) And there's little people inside the balls. (laughs) And they move around. And the tigers just stay in time. That's how how it does it. And I just thought it was like the most amazing act ever. That you go to the trouble of finding 12 tigers, 12 little people. And training this act. (laughs) So... I love that story. (laughs) I wasn't expecting that at all. (laughs) I'm hooked on you now, and now I want another story. (laughs) That's all I got. Oh, come on. You should have seen this guy. This guy is the only person that ever came to this interview and had a list of stories it's like it was like he had his academy award speech on him it was unbelievable there's like a list i forget of like a, i forget them a hundred stories here and he's only given us one i can't believe it i'm so depressed but he's he's getting anxious because he's in his entire lifetime i have created something with simon painter that he has never ever done in his entire career since he owned a smartphone is that except when he sleeps, this is the longest period of time he has ever been without his phone being on. With the most amount of things happening. That's right. So like at any moment, and just to put that into context, we launched London, the sales for London and Broadway today and are at the 11th hour and 59th second of a network TV deal. So it's like the most nuts I've ever been in my life. And in an amazing way, but also an incredibly, like, stressful and overwhelming way. All right. Last three questions. Of course. Your proudest moment in show business. Proudest moment in show business was uh, opening that first circus at the Sydney Opera House. No doubt. The 40,000 people in 10 days. Yeah. Got it. Your biggest disappointment in show business and how you took that disappointment and channeled it into something positive uh that investor dying in south africa and uh everybody hitting rock bottom was definitely the lowest point and can i tell you i was never unhappy or depressed it was just like a numb oh my god i can't believe it's over feeling it made me even hungrier to come back. Incredible. Lastly, what advice do you have for the young person out there in the world who, you know, is whatever, (laughs) doing something that maybe might fulfill them, but they're just not making any money and and to, to figure out what they have to do to, you know, channel something within them to become the kind of successful producer that you are today i think you just gotta you've i mean i think there's there's no uh substance of working hard and also having like many balls in the air is good you know like i think it's great when you're overstretched on your time and being like i love being short on time because it make it forces great decisions. Like 
a great friend of mine says, if you had to make the decision in the next five minutes, what would it be? And you're like, that, because that's what your gut tells you to do. And you can overthink things. And I love being short on time. I love the fact that I have, um, you know, like 7 a.m. till midnight, I'm on it because it's exciting. But you have to have a lot in the air. Like, you can't ever think this thing is going to work. Like, you need to have 20 things and one of those things going to work. But I will tell you, like, like there's no way I could have done this without my wife. She's like, and I know it's sort of maybe cheesy to end on that note, but she's like, most women would have definitely left by now. So she's incredibly supportive of this and of me. And I'm not easy. Not because I don't want to be or I'm not nice. Just because it's all the time. It's just relentless. It's always, I'm stressed, I'm busy, I'm doing this. Oh my God, it's the biggest thing ever. It's the biggest deal. We're going to get it. Oh my God, just one more day. It's going to happen. Fuck, I hope this thing happens. It's fucking stressful. It's not going to happen. It is happening. It's on. Oh my God, now we've got to make it. And it's always that. So she is remarkable for supporting me in that way because it wouldn't have happened if I was on my own. Nice. You heard it right here, everybody. Hard work. There's no substitute and get married to a great woman and that'll take you to the next level uh no but in all seriousness simon um this has been one of the most original uh podcasts i've had like i said i've never had anybody like you and you're a really really special man and uh and i've i don't know you as well as i want to know you but i do know this that um you are an extraordinary visionary and um the things that you've done have blown me away and I can only hope that someday we get to work together to do something in the comedy field channeling maybe my knowledge of comedy and your knowledge of promotion and maybe some decade we'll be printing money for comedy together. Thank you so much. Such a pleasure. Thank you so much to have me. They say it's glory I'll scream your name and put you on shoulders walk you to fame you'll get all the money drive that fancy car all the people love you cause you're going for life is for the dreamers they have all to gain it's never quite over So it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley A fortunate Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast. Leave a comment and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.